0: Welcome back to the Adam Schefter podcast. Happy New Year to everyone. I know it's a little late by the Larry David standards to wish everybody a happy New Year, but we're going to violate that rule because this is the very first podcast of the year. And with this being the first podcast of 2024, we are going to have a special guest, Dean Blandino, the NFL's former vice president of officiating the current rules analyst for Fox and with officiating being a significant topic of discussion during the regular season, and we assume, but hope not, that it will be for the postseason as well, we figured we would bring in Dean Blandino to give us a little bit of the lay of the land of the state of officiating and hint, it's not great right now. But before we get to Dean Blandino, my former colleague at the NFL, We will go first to the co-host of the Fantasy Focus podcast, my friend, my partner, Daniel Dobb for the weekly six pack.
1: Adam, what's up, baby? I got a question for you. Before we start the six pack, like you said, it is the beginning of the new year. I want to start off this way real fast. If I remember correctly, when we left off this podcast over the holiday, you told me that you and your daughter were off to go do something very special. that was that both of you were going to be working on Christmas Day. I just wanted to ask you, what was the Schefter's holiday like, knowing that you and Dylan both got to do something very fun over the Christmas holidays like you talked to us about before we went on to a break?
0: Daniel, thank you for remembering that. It was awesome being on the field at Arrowhead Stadium with her, her being the sideline reporter for Nickelodeon. And again, she's going to be the sideline reporter for the Super Bowl in Las Vegas for Nickelodeon, making her Officially the first Schefter ever to work an actual Super Bowl game. I've done pregame shows. I've done postgame shows. I've never actually worked a Super Bowl. She will this season. And we were together on Christmas Day in Kansas City along the Raiders sideline, which is where she was stationed. And it was unbelievable. You're talking to the players during the game. We had some conversations with Daniel Carlson as he was trying to kick the ball in the net. And we were in his way multiple times. I remember going into the tunnel to... (laughs) Walk in there during halftime to try to defrost a little bit because it was very chilly. We walked out. I happened to walk right next to Devontae Adams in the tunnel, walking out to the field, wished him Merry Christmas, said hello. And I said to him in that tunnel, if you remember, Devontae, let's keep it moving through this tunnel. That was the tunnel Uh. where he had the exchange (laughs) with the ESPN independent contractor last year. And I didn't know how he'd take it, but he actually left. He enjoyed that. We went out, watched the second half. And it was memorable. And the last observation I will tell you about standing on the sidelines in Kansas City for five hours with my daughter that day in about 34, 35 degree temperatures where it was raining, winding, snow, sleet, rain, whatever, the whole thing. We got back to the hotel that night, Daniel, and my body was stiff and creaky beyond words. I am not meant to stand on a sideline for five straight (laughs) hours in the cold and rain like that. It took me about a day to recover until I was at the national championship game Monday night. And I volunteered to work that day from there, make that my work base for ESPN, which we'll get to a little bit. But I stood up all day and it's not a complaint. It sounds like a complaint, right? But the point is I'm not physically well-equipped at my age to do that anymore. Like I was on my feet from 8 a.m. to 1130 p.m. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm paying the price as we record yeah. this in the morning. Like it is not simple <laughs> to do that. I did that it. for years. I I don't know that I can do that anymore. So I imagine and assume I'm gonna have to be with Dylan on the sidelines at the Super Bowl. I don't mm-hmm. know if there's like aerobics or calisthenics or yoga or Pilates classes that I have to take before them to get ready for that. But we got to do something to get in shape for the Super Bowl because this body's not responding to those long stints on the sideline.
1: Got to start doing some up-downs, Adam. Get those thighs yes. ready for those all those standing like you're going to be doing. All right. Well, I, I'm very glad to hear that. So awesome that the holidays went yeah. really well. I wanted to start with that. But you mentioned it. Let's do a topic number one for the six-pack. Adam Schefter, you can't bury the lead. The University of Michigan, your beloved Wolverines, win the national championship over Washington in a pretty dominant fashion. The running game looked awesome. The defense was fantastic. What stood out to you about that win?
0: Well, it was a funky game, Daniel. Michigan had a chance to really take the lead early and put it away and didn't and allowed Washington to stay in the game. But here's a few things that to me stand out. Again, this was always a great group of Michigan men. It was outstanding. And I was fortunate enough to take O's The Mentalist to Ann Arbor this summer. We spent a day around the program. I mean, you could just tell the quality of these kids. I was out of practice, spent some time with a lot of people there, and they're an impressive group. I'll tell you who else is impressive the fans of the university of washington i have my son and my daughter with me and as we sat down all of a sudden i have not been in the stands for a football game in a very long period of time and we sat down there and i'm like oh my god i just started thinking about all the nfl videos i had seen this season of one drunk fan after another getting into one fight after another at football games the thought never occurred to me until we sat down and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm now in that environment, in that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I've watched some of these videos and I've wondered and been concerned for the safety of some fans at football games. Now, again, you don't think anything's going to happen, but again, that's you just got to be aware. The point I'm making here is that we were in a predominantly Michigan section and we had some Washington fans in purple in our row. And after Mike Sandra still picked off that last pass, and he's a great player, Mikey Sandra still, After he picked up that last pass, the Washington fans started exiting. And they stopped in front of me, my son, and my daughter, as we let them out of our row, and congratulated us on the Michigan win, complimented us on how that team played that night, wow. and told wow. us to enjoy the victory. And then in the airport... When we saw more Washington fans, it was the same. And I said to some of the people that we flew home with, I'm like, that was a great group of fans. Like, wow, they were really nice and civil and polite. And they said the same thing. So here's my big shout out to the fans of the University of Washington. Mad respect for the way you carry yourself like sportsmanship, classy. That was impressive. And I don't know whether we were isolated, but. I was impressed with the way those fans handled themselves. And the last thing I'll say about it was we talked about me debating whether to go there or not. And I was able to do it because it was an ESPN, ABC game. It's on ABC all day, like ESPN all day. So, of course, I could do everything that I'm going to do. If I'm going to be on Get Up or First Take or the Pat McAfee show or NFL Live or Sports Center, I can just do it from there. So, this to me, as I sat there during the day in Energy Stadium, felt like the ultimate convergence of all my worlds. Mm -hmm. Here I am tracking all the coaching situations in the NFL, which is very intense and very stressful and very unfortunate for a lot of people going through it. Frankly, I'm doing live shots all day. I'm waiting for Michigan to play for the national championship. I'm waiting for my son and daughter to arrive at the stadium. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. Now. I will say I was so swept up and focused and intense on the coaching situation that it was hard to detach and let myself absorb the convergence of all these things. The thought did occur to me many times. I don't know that I fully processed and enjoyed it as much as I should, but I was aware of it, Daniel, that we can say. So my takeaways were great job by the Michigan football team, classy group of players, coaches, and staff members who deserve this. And I know people are tweeting out cheaters. Give me a break. Go home. Cut the cheating tweet crap out. That's ridiculous. Seriously. Come on, man. Classy Washington fans and honored to be able to give that experience to my son and daughter so that they could share that because it was something that we'll always remember. And I was at the 1989- national championship that Michigan won in basketball in Seattle with my closest college friends. I was at the 2024 Michigan national championship with my son and daughter. And really, in the end, Daniel, that's how life should be.
1: That's pretty cool. That is very cool, Adam. All right. Topic number two, then, Adam Schefter. If Michigan wins the national championship, obviously, Jim Harbaugh is going to be welcome to come back, I would assume, But Michigan is not the only place that would be looking for him to come and coach their team. What do we hear about Jim Harbaugh's future within the NFL, potentially? Well, Daniel, he
0: did everything that he set out to do. That's what Jim Harbaugh wanted to do, build Michigan into a champion. They now officially are a national championship team. Team 144 wins in 2024 michigan national champs great job but look at jim everywhere he's been he's won he took the university of san diego to consecutive 11 and one seasons he turned around the stanford football program and won the orange bowl he went 44 and 19 as a head coach in the nfl and reached the nfc championship game three times as a head coach he took michigan a program that was struggling To three straight college football playoff appearances before winning the national championship on Monday night. So people can say Jim is quirky. People can say he's sometimes eclectic. People can say he cheated, which is a bunch of BS still because I don't believe he was aware of it. That's me. Call me naive. But you cannot argue that he has had great success everywhere he's been. And that is why he is and will be on the radar of NFL teams. I believe the Chargers have him square on their radar. square on the radar radar of the Los Angeles Chargers. I believe the Raiders also are interested. I believe the Atlanta Falcons could be interested. and couldn't you see him going to Atlanta and drafting J.J. McCarthy? And I would rank them in that order of interest right now and these things are subject to change. Chargers, Raiders, Falcons. Now, let's see if any other job's open. Let's see how this all develops. But going into the process, that's how I would rank the NFL team's level of interest in Jim Harbaugh. And he's done what he has to. Now, a lot of those players are leaving. The NCAA still might be after him. There may never be a time that is more ripe for him to leave Michigan than right now. And so, Jim is unpredictable. And you never know what's going to happen with him. But if I had to say what I think will happen, my guess is he'll wind up leaving because he deserves to, because he's interested in doing that. And I would guess, guess, emphasizing guess one more time, Daniel, that it happens. Because I don't know. There were people who thought he would take the Vikings job two years ago. There were people in the Michigan football building that I was on the phone with. They're like, he's taking the job. He's taking the job. Take it. And guess what? He didn't take he the did job. job. Yeah. And last year, he was down the aisle with the Broncos. And then before they got to the altar, he bailed. So let's see how it plays out. But my guess is he's done what he set out to do and that ultimately he does leave to go to the NFL. And we'll see how that plays out now.
1: Hey, there'd be nothing like leaving on top for Jim Harbaugh if he decides to take this next venture into the NFL. And let's talk about topic number three the amount of coaching changes that we have so far. Obviously, we already heard that Arthur Smith has been let go by the Atlanta Falcons. You just mentioned that the Raiders would maybe be interested in Jim Harbaugh. Just as a fan, Adam, that kind of bums me out because I've been so in on this Antonio Mm -hmm. Pierce story. He looks perfect for that franchise and everything he's done as their interim head coach. But I just want to ask you, what kind of coaching changes are we looking at now that we are through the regular season?
0: Well, Daniel, as we tape this Tuesday morning, after I am off, not my red-eye flight, but my pink-eye flight, yeah. landing at 5 a.m., which is brutal.
1: <laughs> brutal.
0: Um, we have five openings. Now, again, I want to emphasize, we're taping this at a time. We are waiting for smoke in the chimney in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And that could happen as we tape this. That could happen later today. That could happen at the end of the week. We don't know when the word of Bill Belichick will come down. My guess as we tape this is that the two sides will part ways, and we'll see if they ultimately do. But until they do, there are 24 years, nine championship game appearances, six Super Bowl titles. There's a lot of history between these two sides, and we'll see if they somehow can figure out a way. I don't think they will. I think it'll be a breakup, but we are waiting to see how it actually comes out. So you're waiting on New England. Tennessee remains unsettled. There's going to be conversations there. I know Pete Carroll says he doesn't want to retire, but does Seattle just stand pat and run it back, or are there any issues? We'll see. I don't know how that will play out, but we're watching from afar and waiting to see. Sure. And I still think in Chicago that it's not final yet that Matt Eberflus will be back. We'll see. Could be, could not be. And then there are the playoff teams, all the playoff teams that are out there. What if there's a team that goes one and done crashes and burns, doesn't play well. I think the focus and pressure and scrutiny and criticism always go to that particular head coach. So again, we've got five as we tape this. Six probably will be New England, but not done yet. Wait on the others. Again, I said seven to 10. I believe it'll come in at seven to 10 and we'll see how it plays out.
1: We will see how that plays out, Adam. Always something that is very interesting to see how these teams are going to change once the season is over and they make all these coaching moves. All right. Topic number four, we got wildcard weekend and Adam, so many narratives. Oh my God. So many oh my stories God. are going on here. I mean, y- you got Matthew Stafford yeah. and the Rams coming on to take on the Detroit Lions and Jared Goff with that trade. You've got Mike McCarthy and the Cowboys playing the Green Bay Packers, the place where he used to be. You got the Deshaun Watson Bowl between the Browns and the Texans featuring no Deshaun Watson. I mean, talk to me about Wild Card weekend. What are you looking for amongst all these crazy stories that we have within the NFL? You
0: didn't mention Tyreek Hill going to play against the Kansas City Chiefs. You yeah, didn't right. mention Julio Jones playing against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> you didn't mention some of the other reunions that are going to happen. But I will say this Daniel, the NFL script writers clearly were working overtime to put mm. together this wild card weekend to have Matthew Stafford going back to Detroit. I know everybody, including myself, is focused on him going back to Detroit and Matthew Stafford's wife Kelly posted video that they posted of his time of departure from Detroit. But how about Jared Goff going up against the Rams? Mm -hmm. That seems to be the less talked about story. And I would guarantee you that of those two quarterbacks, one harbors a greater grudge than the other. Now, that's not the makeup of Jared Goff, who's California chill and a cool guy, but he will never forget how that ended in Los Angeles. He made his feelings known to Sean McVay. And when we talk about breakups, those two sides were ready to break up, or at least the Rams were. And Jared Goff got blindsided and nobody likes to be jilted in a relationship and have Mm -hmm. their partner tell them they're not wanted or needed anymore. And that the other side is moving on. Well, that was Jared Goff. Jared Goff, Gets a chance now to go up against a team that basically told them, we're done with you. We want you out of our organization. And that is something that I don't think as many people have talked about. As I just get a text from the Rams, as we take tape this right now, Ooh. on cue, the NFL script drivers. I told you, they're working That's overtime right. this weekend, right now, <laughs> and there is additional evidence of it right now,
1: Daniel. Gosh. All right, Adam, I mean, honestly, part of this question for me is, and I'm with you, everyone's talking about Matthew Stafford coming home to Detroit. Guess what? As a Lions fan, we all love Matthew Stafford. That shouldn't be the story. I'm with you on Jared Goff, being able to have that narrative of going back and taking on Sean McVay, the coach that that would rather have Matthew Stafford than him. So I'm very invested in that one. But speaking of Jared Goff and these Detroit Lions, topic number five for me, Adam Schefter, is Ben Johnson. We're talking about all these coaches' moves. We're talking about guys that are going to have new jobs sooner or later. I feel like there is no offensive coordinator that has had as much buzz as anyone else in the NFL as Ben Johnson. What can you tell me about him and his potential future? I
0: think he is right now the number one candidate out there. I think he's the true bell of the ball, somebody that multiple teams will be interested in hiring. Carolina, interested in him again. Washington, interested in him Right now, as their head coach, I'm sure everybody is interested in him. And last year, he turned down the opportunity to go to Carolina. I don't know Ben Johnson, personally. In fact, we tried to get him on this podcast, and he, for whatever reason, was busy during the season. Get it. All good. Uh, Didn't get him. But my understanding is, you know, he doesn't love the media portion of the job. He loves the X's and O's and the scheming and the guys and the team and the organization. Doesn't love the media component, which as a head coach
2: is going to be a
0: big part of your job. So that's something that he's going to have to learn and grow and adjust to. Just, I think, again, it's so important every day, but it doesn't change the fact that he will be the guy that everybody wants. And I would be surprised without knowing him, if he didn't take one this year, just because he's going to have so many teams after him. He's going to have so much interest. He's going to have so much money waved at him. And if I were the Detroit Lions, I would think that I would be in a position to be losing my offensive coordinator, that there's a real chance that that's going to happen this year.
1: And it's not one of those scenarios, Adam, where it's just like, hey, just pay that offensive coordinator all the head coach money that everyone else is offering him, right? Like teams aren't going to do that. They're not going to stick around and, and keep an OC at too much money when they feel like they can bring someone else in to be able to continue to move this offense forward.
0: I think that he is the guy that teams are going to want, and offenses are key. And if you get Ben Johnson, your offense is secured as long as he's a head coach for that respective franchise. Yep. Uh, I believe this is the year he takes the jump.
1: All right. Well, that's a bummer for me as a Lions fan. However, the playoffs are not over, so maybe he can still help us win that elusive Super Bowl. Topic number six, Adam Schefter. Let's talk about the MVP of this league. There are two guys to me that kind of kind of make this be a a race between themselves. To me, it's Lamar Jackson and everything that he has done with the Baltimore Ravens Mm -hmm. and Dak Prescott and the unbelievable way that he has played this year for the Dallas Cowboys. I know there was talk about Brock Purdy and Christian McCaffrey and everybody else was good. But, Adam, it feels like those two guys are the guys that are at the top of the MVP convo. When you look at this, who do you think? is going to be the MVP at the end of this season? Or do you have a thought as to which way it should go?
0: Well, I'm going to say this to you. Uh, I'm not a voter. I'm glad I'm not a voter. Um, But when you look at this, it's a situation where those are the two names, Lamar Jackson and Dak Prescott. And it certainly seems like Lamar Jackson has gotten all the public support, can't argue, and Dak Prescott has gotten a little less. Well, I just want to give you some numbers here, Daniel. okay? Okay? Break it down. Let's go to the data for further checkpoints. Dak Prescott played 17 games this year, Lamar Jackson 16. Dak Prescott was 12 and 5, Lamar Jackson was 13 and 3. Dak Prescott completed 69.5% of his passes, Lamar Jackson 67.2. Passing yards, Dak Prescott 4516, Lamar Jackson 3678. Passing yards per game, Dak Prescott over 265. Lamar Jackson 2.29 passing touchdowns per game, Dak Prescott 2.1, Lamar Jackson 1.5 touchdown percentage, Dak Prescott 6-1, Lamar Jackson 5-3. Interceptions, Dak Prescott 9, Lamar Jackson 7. Total Ooh. turnovers, Dak Prescott 11, Lamar 13. Rushing yards and this is the big difference, Dak 242, Lamar 821. But QBR, Dak Prescott 72.6, Lamar The point is, is that in every metric, in every category, except rushing yards, which is valuable, Dak Prescott has outplayed and outperformed Lamar Jackson. Now, Lamar Jackson's got that mojo, and he Mm -hmm. does have the Ravens in a number one seat. So I can't argue with that. All I'm doing is pointing out to you that Dak Prescott's numbers are better, by and large, than Lamar Jackson's. So while there are voters out there saying that Lamar deserves it, you can easily make an argument for Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. Now, again, it's also the MVP of the regular season, so Dak has the chance to do something in the postseason that's more meaningful than any MVP award that he could win. Let's see if he is up to the challenge in an offseason where he's expected to get a new contract and is going to crush it there anyway.
1: Gosh, I can't imagine at that point being able to figure out Dak Prescott, who came into the season. We were talking about him. Mike McCarthy, do you remember this at the beginning of the year, Adam? Mike McCarthy said, we're going to run the ball. We're going to run the ball. We're going to run the ball. We want to run the ball. They talked about how they were going to do that over and over. Now we're talking about Dak Prescott in the MVP conversation with the way that he has played quarterback. He has been unbelievable this year. Hopefully he gets a whole bunch of money going into next year because he has absolutely earned it.
0: And Dak Prescott also was a part of the game officiated by the Brad Allen crew, where there were any number of huge calls that impacted oh. the playoff scene race. I don't mean to remind you about that, Daniel, it hurts, but you know the Alan. deal. It right? Hurts. And so Dallas comes out on top there. The officiating comes out on the bottom. And the officiating has been under discussion since then. So we figured to start the year as we head into the postseason, what better way but to get a breakdown of the state of officiating With Dean Blandino, the NFL's former vice president of officiating, the current rules analyst for Fox, who's from Daniel, by the way, the same hometown as I am, Belmore, New York, on Long Island. Dean and I grew up right near each other. Yep. Worked next to each other in the league office when I served five years at NFL Network. And now Dean has gone on to become one of the foremost, if not the foremost authority on rules and the state of officiating. And so before we get to any other controversies, we bring in Dean Blandino. What is going on? How are you? How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Long time no speak. Yeah, I know. I know. Everything going so, well with you? There? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything's going great. Yeah. It's uh, It's been an interesting year, to say the least, for officiating. Well, why
0: do you think I called you to get you on the podcast here? Clearly, you, not
2: to. We weren't. We weren't. We're not talking uh, badminton. So, I, well, I we. I, we,
0: we I, I could have asked you about the fact that we're both from the same hometown, Belmore, Long right. Island. I could have asked you about your stand-up comedy career. I could have asked you about our near adjoining offices at the NFL. That's right. I Could have asked you about lunch in the cafe, bumping into. I could ask you about a lot of those things, and maybe we will get around to that too, Dean. But we will start with the state of officiating going into the postseason because I don't know that there's ever been more scrutiny or that the scrutiny's ever been this high on the officials. And I'm curious to know if you agree with that and how you would assess the state of officiating right now.
2: I, I totally agree. The scrutiny is at an all-time high, and I don't see it getting any less. Right, The way the world is today with social media – and everything, you think about like sports betting now and, and all of these other things that that are impacting um, how people look at these games. And the officials are, right, the two teams and the officials, those are the three groups that impact the outcome of games. And and quite frankly, the officials, the, the expectation is perfection. And we know that's not possible. But this year, and I do feel we're at, at, at somewhat of a tipping point with officiating, I do feel like The league is taking some steps to address some of the issues with technology in game and allowing replay to come in and and assist in in different areas. But I do feel that the the on-field product, the the actual officials themselves um, out there officiating the game, I think they may be relying a little bit too much on that technology and it's getting away from – some of the basics and some of the things that they've been doing their entire career. And now they're, well, they have somebody upstairs that can tell them where the spot of that foul was or can t- tell them where that ball went out of bounds. And 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 I think that is leading to the overall quality of officiating on the field to to decrease. And, and that that's kind of what I'm seeing now.
0: When you say they're relying more on the technology, are you saying that in the back of their minds as they're making a call, they know they have backup help to affirm or deny what they're calling?
2: I think to some extent that, but more so they're deferring their decision-making to replay. There's been so many situations where you see a play and the officials don't do anything. They, they don't rule anything because they're just letting it play out and they're they're hoping that replay can come in and tell them what it is. And you see that at the goal line, you see that with a loose ball, the quarterback gets hit, the ball's on the ground, the defense is running with it, and no one is doing anything. And and then replay has to come in and say, "Well, yeah, the hand was clearly coming forward. That's an incomplete pass." So I think we're seeing more of that. And and I think, you know, and we're seeing more big calls at, at the end of game, especially pass interference. You, know, you go back to the Chiefs Packers game, you know, a couple of missed calls in that game. Um, One call that was made that really wasn't a foul, and then the one that was missed on pass. You know, you look at games this past weekend, I mean, it just appears that in big moments, officials aren't going to be perfect, but there's those big moments they have to be, and they haven't been this year, and that's a problem. Okay, so let's
0: take this short-term future, and let's go a little bit beyond that. How do you feel about the state of the officials going into this postseason dean
2: yeah i'm nervous I, i you know you look at you hope in the playoffs the way that that structure works the officials are evaluated throughout the season those evaluations accumulate and then in the playoffs it's an individual merit system so so the top rated side judge will you know the top rated back judges the top rated line judges um regardless of what crew they were on so you in theory, you, you will have your best officials working these games. So, so I do think that's a positive, but I also like the continuity when you have a crew that is working well together, the communication, they don't have to start from scratch when they get together for a postseason game. They've been working all year and they kind of understand how how you know their crewmates work. So I think there's that dynamic as well. But as you go into these postseason games and now everything, the scrutiny, the pressure the 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 you know the outcomes it's all magnified and now we're right. going in we're going in on kind of a a little bit of a downturn and you know hopefully it doesn't it doesn't lead to something like we saw in the 2018 nfc championship game with the saints and the rams or or something you know even more controversial it, it it's well, well say it. the officials already
0: had a hand right or wrong and how these NFC playoff teams are seated. Detroit was locked in to the number three seed over whether or not Dan Skipper and yeah. Taylor Decker did and didn't report. Because of that, literally, that impacted the seedings going into this weekend.
2: It's incredible when you think about that. You think about that situation. And 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 I've said it and and there's there's some accountability on Brad Allen and the officiating. Yeah. prove that that he has to know who's reporting he can't assume he can't assume because 70 had reported earlier in the game and 70 is running onto the field that he's the guy that's going to be eligible when 68 taylor decker is standing in front of him and i there's no doubt in my mind that taylor decker said whatever he said but i am no doubt in my mind he said something to the effect of i'm reporting because the play doesn't work if if decker doesn't report right. like it did just And they all said he reported. They all said it. They're not making it up. They're not making it up. They're not making it up. And and to me, what happened is, you know, the the Lions, Dan Campbell told Brad Allen, told the crew before the game that 70 was going to report in different situations. He did earlier in the game. And I think they did try to disguise it more for Dallas, not for Brad Allen. But they did try to disguise it because I've never, in my experience, I've never seen three offensive linemen approach a referee when only one was going to report. So I get that, but that's not illegal. You know, you do start to push the envelope in terms of, you know, in sportsmanlike conduct and attempt to deceive, but that's, to me, that's not a foul, but I just think Brad went too fast. He assumed it was 70. There's no reason to rush. I mean, look, hindsight's 2020. We all made mistakes, but it's such a big situation. The clock isn't running. Just stop, slow down and say, Hey, okay. Who is reporting? who's eligible and then make the announcement. And then, you know, we could have avoided all this.
0: I've heard people say that Detroit tried to trick up the Cowboys and wound up tricking up Brad Allen's crew by sending the three linemen towards him when only one of them was reporting. I've heard people say that, when Brad Allen and his crew announced that 70 was eligible, as they told the Dallas defense that someone on the Detroit staff should have called timeout and said, Hold on, it's sixty-eight, not seventy. I've heard a lot of things. The bottom line, it doesn't excuse the fact that the officiating crew missed that call. And it also missed the call on the previous series when it called tripping on the wrong yeah. team. The wrong team. They called it on the Cowboys tight end Peyton Hendershot. When in fact it was Aiden Hutchinson that stuck out his leg and deserved the tripping penalty. How often do we see something like that go that yeah, way in a that, game? I mean, that eat?
2: doesn't happen very often. Sometimes on kicking plays, you'll see, you know, blocking block in the back and they get the teams kind of who was the kicking team, who was the return team. Uh, but that's unusual. And those are, those are the types of situations. I, you know, when I was at the league office and you talk to coaches all the time, and and you could you could explain okay we 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 called holding maybe there wasn't enough restriction or or we we didn't see that that hold because maybe the, the 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 line of sight was blocked for whatever reason you can explain those things it doesn't it doesn't absolve the officials but but a lot of times there are mitigating factors um, in situations like this when you got a call on the wrong team or a procedural thing that 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 involves a rule or a procedure, those are harder to explain. Those are harder to kind of explain away. And especially in a game where, like you said, had has such a big impact on seeding for the NFC playoffs. Like this is going to have, this is going to have repercussions going forward. And and I think we're going to be talking about it, right? If Detroit goes and 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 loses their first playoff game, people are going to bring this up. It's just the reality of it.
0: So this is the short term. We're all watching the officials going into the postseason now. But what long term can and will the league do about what I would say is something of an officiating crisis? And it's not just you or I saying this. I've heard this from so many teams who are so bothered by the state of officiating. Not just now in previous seasons. It's not a new phenomena, but it feels like it's more intense now than it's been in other years.
2: And, and I think you're exactly right, and that's the key. For me, and I've been through this, I've been through these, this is the worst officiating ever, and that narrative yeah. that the media or, or or the fans, the public, and I get that and I understand that, but, but it's the clubs that matter. And when the clubs feel that way, now you have a problem. And I think there's an onus on the clubs to not, because look, and I've experienced this, if the playoffs go really well and there's no issues right a lot of this dies down and then we get into the competition committee and the league meetings and things and it's not as it's 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 you know the emotion has died down and no one does anything right and we forget what happened for for 18 weeks of the regular season and I, what i would hope is that the clubs can say no wait a minute we have a problem we have to take a look at the structure of the officiating department how does it work what is the communication between the competition committee and the officiating leadership during the season and cuz we can't have officiating leadership out there dictating changing things on the fly without competition committee direction how are the officials being trained how are they being hired what is that structure? What is that process? And I think it's on the clubs to force the league office, not the other way around, the clubs to force the league office to take a good, deep look at officiating and uh, and see where they, can, where they can improve.
0: I have heard from so many teams myself who are frankly pissed off. I'm just telling you, they are. And I think they're going to try to enact some change. So if I turn to you, Dean Blandino, as somebody who once ran this department and knows this as well as anybody, what would be your recommendation for what the league can do to improve the state of officiating?
2: Well, I think one of the, it's low hanging fruit. I mean, to to, to look at the official, look, you've got to look at your staff. You've got to look at how, what are our hiring practices? Are we getting the best officials? You know, how are we training them? What opportunities are we giving them to, to get to that NFL standard um, all of that. That's a heavy lift. And, and that that has to take place. But I think the low hanging fruit, which the league they're they're so guarded when it comes to officiating and guarded in a way that when they, they don't want to admit mistakes, they don't want to. And I understand you can't come out every week, every game and say, here's 17 mistakes we made yeah. because that undermines the credibility of your officials. But I think in moments like what happened Saturday with the Lions and the Cowboys or other moments where if you can come out from a league perspective and say, we missed this call, here's why, this is what happened, and here's what we're doing to correct it, I think that it kind of takes some of the sting away. It doesn't change what happened. But I think people will respect that versus just doubling down and, 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 and saying, no, we didn't make a mistake. We didn't do- Here's the
0: pool report. Read the pull report. This is what Brett Allen said. Right. I don't remember, Dean, and tell me if I'm wrong. I don't remember the league saying, we got that
2: wrong and we need to do better. No, no, they've they've still stood by the fact that they got it right. And there's no 70 is not there's 70's not going to report. He's, he lines up <laughs> in an illegal position if he reports. 68 is illegal if he doesn't report. So at least come out and say there was a miscommunication. Here's what led to it. We should have done this versus just like, hey, 70 reported, That's the end of it, and we're moving on. Now now you now you create the conspiracy theories. Now you create this entire environment, that has already been building throughout this season. And now there's not a lot of confidence going into the postseason. And like you said, the clubs are all pissed off. And that's that's a problem.
0: I'd love to see the league acknowledge it. Listen, we could have done a better job communicating. We could have done a better job with this call. I've never heard that from an official. And, and even as somebody who has been a part of previous pool reports in the past, it always feels like the official is trying to justify what took place with some obtuse, ambiguous explanation that I don't understand or is confusing and further muddies the waters, rather than just saying,
2: there was a mistake. There was a mistake. It happens, it's human. The, the pool report is an antiquated, I, I never liked the pool report. I think it just, it doesn't help. We never, you know, we never come out and say anything of real substance. It's just like you said, it's justifying what happened. Um, and I think it just, it doesn't help. It it actually, it actually exacerbates the whole situation. And I I think there's, there's a better way to do it. Uh, but I don't know if the league is going to, is going to take those steps to put, put some structure in place on that. So in your
0: mind though, it's going to take the league stepping forward, which I think they have in the past, but they may be more vociferous about in the future to make it such that somehow they find a way to improve the quality of fishing. So if we're going to find a way, what would be your suggestion?
2: For me, and we always talk about full-time officiating. Yeah. I, I don't think just calling them full-time is, is the answer. But I do think providing more resources, getting the right people in place from the top all the way down to the bottom in terms of and working with the competition committee, I do feel like we've got to get back to the best officials training them up teaching them using technology when we can but if we miss a pass interference call in the chiefs packers game right that's going to have a big impact on the outcome of the game why did we miss it what happened are we not in position look at the mechanics look at everything that is happening today and say how can we improve look at all of our mistakes and say okay what were the what were the common denominators again was it positioning was it judgment was it and if we have officials that don't that don't meet the standard, we've got to turn over and we've got to make sure that we bring in new new officials that are ready to to meet that standard, because it's not the scrutiny and the and the, the importance of these games is not going to it's not going to lessen. It's only going to it's only going to increase. And we you know, we all have to get better.
0: You know, it's funny to say that because I want to say this. I have been outspoken about the way that the Lions-Cowboys game unfolded and how the NFC seedings were established. But I think, by and large, these officials, people don't realize the incredible job that they do do in real time. The speed of the game, it's incredible. But there are glaring examples of misses that stand out, that generate the conversation that we're engaged in today and create the debate that's going to go on this offseason that we hope leads to improved change. But they make so many good calls during the course of the game. It's a way somehow to limit the ones
2: that are as glaring as they are. That's exactly right. And they do. And it's incredible. There's a disconnect between how the game is officiated, right? On the field, if you've ever had an opportunity to be on the field during an NFL game on the sideline, the speed is incredible. And And the first time I was able to be on the sideline, I told the crew, I was like, I don't know how you get anything right. Right. It's 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 incredible. And then but but how do we get to evaluate them? We get to evaluate them from four or five different angles, slow motion, a couple of different perspectives like that. So there is that disconnect. But like you said, and I've always thought, right, there's there's four or five plays a game that really decide the outcome of the game. Right. The hundred and fifty five plays in an NFL game, but four or five that really are going to decide the outcome. And the officials have to be perfect on those four or five plays in those critical situations. And when we're not perfect in those situations, okay, what is the problem? How can we correct that? Because they're not going to be perfect. They make thousands of decisions each game. Thousands. And they're right on the overwhelming majority of them. But we're only going to talk about those four or five plays. That's that's the whole thing. You know how many times there are during the course
0: of a game where you see something and you think, oh, that's incomplete. And you watch it and they call complete on the field and it's complete. I'm like, how did they see that? That's incredible. But – then again, there are these moments, and and I don't mean to be unfair about it. I'm just telling you the facts. It seems like the Brad Allen crew has been involved in any number of them this offseason because any number of them stand out. Like, literally, they missed the pass interference call on Marquez valdez Scaling. Now, isn't there a way that we could look at that? I know it's not reviewable, but maybe in the future we can make something like that reviewable for games on the line. I don't know how. I'm sure the competition committee has gone through this. But that can happen in a game, and they missed a pass interference call the week before in the Saints Falcons game, and then there was the roughing the passer in the Browns Bears game, and then there was the phantom call in the Jets game where they called illegal contact that wasn't, and then there was this incident. Like that's a lot of
2: calls for that crew. It is, and they've had a tough year. And then, then there's no, there's no sugarcoating that they've had a tough year, and that that happens. And sometimes it kind of snowballs. And unfortunately, the referee is the one we're going to remember. Right. If you go back, I mean, it's like Phil Luckett. Phil Luckett had, you know, going back 20, 25 years, he had the coin toss. And then there was these other situations that that as a referee, he wasn't even involved in those calls. But because he was the referee that everybody knows, it followed him around. And this will follow Brad Allen around. And, and that's the unfortunate part. But these officials know they don't get into it. They don't get into it for pats on the back and, and accolades because you don't get them. You don't get them in this business. No, you're, you're only trying to you're only trying to mitigate mistakes. You're only trying to reduce mistakes and the best. And, and, and it's a it, it's a cliche, but it's true. Right. The best officiated games. No one even knows the officials were there. We weren't we're not talking about them. And you hope that the playoffs, you have, what, 11 games like that. But, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen.
0: If we have anything in the postseason that's even controversial, oh, boy. And, again, that's why we're doing the podcast. And you mentioned the all-star Cruise, And I know the league feels strongly about this. But now that you have moved over from the league offices to the broadcast side, let me put it to you in these terms, Dean. If you had a great year on your broadcast And then somebody else at your network had a great year uh, doing morning updates. And somebody else had a great year as a sideline reporter. And we took this all-star crew who all were decorated together and put them on one broadcast in the end. When you didn't know how the other person thought or behaved or acted during the course of a broadcast, I don't know that that would be an advantage. If all of a sudden I'm doing Sunday Countdown with Mike Greenberg, who had a great year doing Get Up, and Stephen A. Smith... Who's great on first take and Jeff Passan, who's been delivering excellent baseball updates in Woj, and you put us all together because everyone had good years and we've never worked together before in a broadcast. I don't know how that would go.
2: I'd I'd watch it. I'd love to see Woj talking about NFL. I mean that you know, but that's just me. But but you're right, and that's that's always been the debate about the All Star Cruise. And actually, this is you know the league has kind of gone back and forth on this during my time. Cruise um all-star crews the the officials their union they prefer the all-star setup they prefer that um they they feel that the best officials should be working that if you're on a crew that you have you're the you're the top rated side judge but your crew didn't have a great year they don't want that 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 really good side judge sitting at home whereas another crew could have a great year but they've got a lower rated uh back judge whatever it may be so I, i i think i see kind of both sides of it but i think that continuity of knowing hey, I've worked with the same group of of people all year, there's going to be less of a learning curve. There's going to be more, there's going to be, it's Mm. going to be more cohesive, at least initially, when when you've worked with those people before.
0: Is there any way the league could convince you to come back and leave television and go work in the league office and run this? Because so many people miss you, truly, and you've done such a great job with that. And your name comes up every time. Can they pay Dean Blandino enough money to come back and leave Fox and go back to the league offices to go do the job that he had done in the pet. Is that even an option, Dean?
2: I, I love, look, I love the NFL. That's, I started there. I started as an intern. I was 23 years old. It was yeah. my first job out of school. That's my, been my life. I love, I love the NFL. I would always, I would always listen. I would always want, and I'm, and I'm, I'm humbled and flattered that people think that because, believe me, it wasn't perfect when I was there. Then it wouldn't be perfect if I came back. But I do think that there's some things that could be corrected. I would always listen. I've got a number in mind. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Either way, it's pretty good for a Belmore boy yes. to have
0: gone from the mean streets of Merrick Road and Sunrise Highway. To the league office, now to doing television. Could you ever have imagined your career going like this to where now you're on television with an officiating
2: background? How does all that happen, Dean? I don't know. It's so it's so bizarre. Like you said, Belmore hanging out on at Newbridge Road Park and 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 been there, you know, and just Playing, loving sports, and playing my whole life, and not—I didn't know anything about officiating. I didn't know just just from playing sports. The refs were the refs, and and that was it. And the NFL had, you know, I sent my resume, and this was back even before the internet was a big thing, and you know, so you sent a letter, and 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 they called and had a couple of internships available, and one was in officiating, and I interviewed with Jerry Seaman, who was the head of officiating at the time, and he. I guess he liked me and and the rest was history. It's just, it's I feel like it chose me. I didn't choose it. Well, that's funny. I
0: think a lot of people in their respective professions feel the exact same way. So how does then one get an internship at the NFL, immerse himself in officiating to the point where he now is an expert in that subject? How does that happen over the years, Dean?
2: Yeah, I think it was, I knew that because I didn't have an officiating background. I knew I was going to have to do something to stand out and that was going to be learn the rules back and front and just, and just immerse myself in the rule book, talk to as many people as I could. I was blessed with good people around me that took an interest in my career that helped me. And I knew that that was gonna be my path. Um, and, and that allowed me to you know be in the room with the officials and have those conversations. And they, yeah, they could question that I never officiated but they couldn't question my rules knowledge. And then, and then in 1999, the league brought replay back. I was heavily involved in that process became a replay official and, and again, just continued to work and, and was blessed with great opportunities, took those opportunities. And, uh, and now I get to go on TV and, and explain, explain rules to uh, millions of fans, which is still surreal and crazy when I get text messages from friends that I haven't heard from back in Mepham high school. And they're like, Hey, I just heard you in my living room. And they, you know, so it's, it's definitely surreal.
0: It's almost like somebody, right, if you go to study the law and you go to law school, you immerse yourself in the law, you just happen to immerse yourself in officiating to the point now, again, where you are one of the leading, if not the leading foremost expert in this particular area. What has been the biggest thing that has surprised you about working in television, which you certainly were not trained to do, but you've now gone on to do with your officiating knowledge?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest transition and the biggest hurdle was you don't have a lot of time. You've you you you've got to, I mean, we've had multiple games. Like Sunday we'll have, I think we'll have four games in the early window, three in the late window. And so you've got multiple games that you're monitoring. You have to see a play, formulate your your thoughts. And the producer gets in your ear, okay, Dean, we're going to go to you. And then, you know, and then Kevin Burkhardt or Joe Davis or whoever is going, well, let's bring in Dean Blandino. And then you've got you know you don't have a lot of time between plays so you've got maybe 10 seconds to articulate what you want you know the audience to know and uh and so that's been the biggest the biggest transition is just the timing of it because when you're in at the league office when i was making decisions in 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 game day central right you've got more time you can you can analyze you can do more um in that time now on tv it's quick and you've got to be on top of it and there's a lot of focus involved and and also just again the surrealness of Going on the air and not, you know, I can't imagine the guys that that and gals that do this and and speak for three hours because you you make one, you say one wrong word and the internet, you know, your, your 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 social media they 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 miss nothing. So it's it's interesting.
0: It's a form of breaking news, only when it comes to judgment calls on the spot, right? All of a sudden I could be there and get a text. Hey, this coach is out. This coach is hired.
2: Come on the air.
0: Formulate your thought. I don't have any thoughts.
2: Let's just go talk. And and that's, that's a great point because it's like, you can't prepare for that. Right. You don't know. And it's like, I can't, I can prepare in terms of knowing the rules, but I don't know what play is going to happen. I don't know what rule is going to come into question. So you have to be prepared for all of it. And that's, that's part of, you know, the preparation that we do during the week. It's kind of crazy to think about it like that.
0: Ah, uh, you also trained to become a stand-up comic. That I guess did not work out. You took to the officiating more than you did to comedy.
2: I yeah, that was more of a hobby. I was you know living, growing up in New York. Lived in New York City for a long time. Um, had some friends that did it. They you know kind of thought I'd be good at it, and I tried it, and I loved it, and so I would do it from time to time. There's a ton of comedy clubs in New York City. And uh, I never I never saw it as a career path. I knew okay. my, as my career at the NFL progressed, I knew that's where I was going to go. But the stand-up comedy really helped. It helped in my career. It helped because you get up in front of a group of strangers and you have to entertain them for, for a certain amount of time. And, and you know, so when, when a joke bombs and it's just crickets, um, that to me was more devastating than getting – Talking <laughs> Tom Coughlin chewing me out on the phone after uh you know after the, the Cowboys uh you know Giants game. So stand-up comedy was the hardest thing that I ever did, but it was such a it was such a cool thing and it's such an adrenaline adrenaline rush.
0: I remember the times in my life when I've been chewed out the most and the hardest by particular individuals. I could think of one time Sean Payton, I could think of the late great Jim Fossil. Uh who's the one guy that placed a call to you on a Monday morning? irate, angry, that just stands out in your mind?
2: There's a couple, um, you know, Sean was great. I love Sean Payton, but Sean, he wouldn't wait till Monday. You know, they're there. His game would be at one o'clock on Sunday and he'd call you at, at four and five. And, and I'd be like, coach, we got other games going on. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, there was. I mentioned Tom Coughlin because that's a that is an actual. He called me, and I think they played. It was a regular season game against the Patriots, and I think we missed a hold or something, and yeah. it ended up being having a pretty big impact, and and the Giants lost the game, and he was just letting me have it, and and you and and I always knew like you got to let the coach vent, and and as he's just ripping me a new one, I'm getting text messages from his assistant going. Don't worry about it. Don't take it personal. I deal with it every day. So it was great. So I had to like, as I'm listening to Tom, I'm getting his assistant texting me words of encouragement. So I'll always remember that.
0: And before I let you go, Dean, just very quickly, do you think the tush push brotherly shove? Yeah. What happens to that this off season?
2: I, you know, I think I've kind of gone back and forth on this. I just think there's so much that comes with this play and, and, you know we look at right now we're calling offensive offside at a, at a historic rate and all of these things that come it's such a hard play to officiate and and you've got all these teams the eagles do it really well everybody else doesn't do it that well but mm-hmm. um you know it's not a my thing is it, it would not be a new rule this was illegal for a very long time in the nfl it was illegal forever and then in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, right, If the competition committee said, well, it's not being called, so we're just going to take it out of the rule. Hmm. And, and I just think it's – you think about the defense, and I always uh, – uh, Joel Bussard, who you know, who's one of my mentors, he, he told me this the other day, and, and it really made sense. He's like, you think about the unfairness of this of this play. If the defense wraps up a running back and they drive him back, they, they don't get any benefit, right? The, the running back is right. going to get forward progress, so the defense can drive him back ten yards, but there's no benefit. But if the offense gets behind the runner and they push him for ten yards, they they gain that advantage. So so it is unfair when you think of it that way. I think there's a safety element. Look, as long as it's legal, I think the Eagles do it really well, and they're going to continue to do it. But I do think the competition committee needs to look at it uh, because I think there's a lot of issues that stem from it, and and I don't know if that's if that's great for the game.
0: And the other one that I wanted to ask you about is we saw in the Lions Cowboys game that C D Lamb fumbled out of the end yeah. zone, which was a touchback. Could that rule be eliminated this offseason?
2: It could. You know, I know every time it happens, it, it generates a lot of conversation. Um, in my experience, that once they get into those competition committee conversations, the the idea that the end zone is different and it's and it's more uh it should be more punitive if you fumble into your yeah. opponent's end zone. That that kind of really like leads the way and i don't think they get enough votes that's that would be my gut that to change it for the one or two plays that happen um but i think it'll be a conversation i wouldn't be shocked if they you know if they get enough votes i just don't think they will
0: dean i want to thank you very much for the time i congratulate you on all your success from belmore to the league office to fox television and I will continue to tune in and wish you the very best and really appreciate the time that you gave us today.
2: Appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me, Adam.
0: Thank you, Dean. And there is Belmore Boy and the NFL's former vice president of officiating, the NFL rules analyst for Fox, Dean Blandino, who obviously will be keeping a close eye on this postseason, as we all will be as well. And we kept a close eye on the regular season. We've mentioned fantasy in this space many times. I know people don't care generally about other people's fantasy teams, but this is still an interesting story. For the very first time in my time at ESPN, my team in the 16-team War Room League advanced to the finals, and my team was pitted up against Stefania Bell's team. And I had all sorts of lineup decisions. And, Daniel, sometimes you should just think less react less, do work less, and let your team do what it's supposed to. But in the last weekend of the season, I decided to cut Jerome Ford to make room for Cedric Wilson because Jalen Waddle. we didn't know that he was going to play and I needed a wide receiver. So I cut Jerome Ford thinking I'm not going to play him on a short week against a tough Jets defense. And lo and behold, Jerome Ford goes off for almost 26 fancy points that night that I didn't get. And then that weekend... I had a couple of lineup decisions. I had two flex spots and I was debating whether or not to put in Jake Ferguson, Kenneth Walker, Zach Charbonnet or Tajay Spears. I decided on Saturday night, Dallas is at home. Dallas at home has been incredible. I called down, spoke to some people in Dallas. Jake is tight end one. He's in the game plan. All that. Yup. 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 Good. We're leaving him in. He underperformed in a great season that he had got me about, seven points that night. So now I can only play one other running back. And if Walker was listed as questionable. I called out to the Seahawks. I spoke to a couple of different people. Is he okay? And the message I got back was, <clears throat> we're worried about his shoulder. Don't know mm-hmm. how long he's going to hold up. It yep. could be one hit and done. And I had visions of him playing in Los Angeles about a month ago, suffering an oblique injury early in the game, leaving and not returning. Yep. Very worried. Zach Charbonnet, they love also would have played him, but Kenneth Walker is there, and if he does play and he does do well, then Zach Charbonnet is neutralized. So I split the baby, or split the difference, or what's the phrase that I'm trying for? Or split the yeah, uh, split the uh, apple, split the whatever there you it go, is. I,
1: everything. Yeah,
0: I split it all, and I went <laughs> Tajay Spears. Well, lo and behold, Kenneth Walker takes one of his very first handoffs that day, yeah, and scores a touchdown. The other wide receiver decision I had to make was in Denver. She had Cortland Sutton. He was out with concussion. I needed somebody to replace Jalen Waddell and didn't feel entirely comfortable with Cedric Wilson. So I picked up Brandon Johnson. And I spoke to the Broncos. I'm like, Brandon Johnson or little Jordan Humphrey? And I was told, Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson. And Brandon Johnson got tackled at the one. Didn't score a touchdown. Little Jordan Humphrey reeled off a 50-yard touchdown reception. Long story short, if I had played little Jordan Humphrey after asking the Broncos, I would have won the championship. Kenneth Walker took one of his first handoffs. Went for a 25-yard or so touchdown. Tajay Spears never scored. If I had played Kenneth Walker over Tajay Spears, as I had all year long, I would have won. If I had left Jerome Ford in my lineup over Jake Ferguson, I would have won. You could come up with every scenario. If any one of them, after I make the phone calls to gather the intel that I did, had gone the other way, I would have been the War Room League champion. Instead, I over-GM'd, And as I always say with fantasy, the more you know, the less you know. And so I GM myself out of a fantasy championship this year by not playing Jerome Ford, by Uh. not sticking with Kenneth Walker, by going with Brandon Johnson over little Jordan Humphrey, little simple decisions that cost me the 2023 ESPN Fantasy War Room title. So to all those people who fell short of your fantasy championships, My condolences are with you. I understand your feeling. It is not easy. I was as magnanimous as the Washington football fans were on Monday night. I texted Stefania and her partner, Rod Guajaro, congratulated them on their championship. It was a little salty inside, but that's the way it goes. We're on to (laughs) next year, Daniel. And we are on to next year here at this podcast as well. We want to thank Dean Blandino, the rules analyst at – Fox. I want to thank you, Daniel, for moderating the weekly six-pack. I want to thank our great producers, Christina Bustle and Sarah Abbott, and you, the listener, for tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week in this space. We'll be back with more information, interviews, insight, and I would imagine by then, I will guarantee by then, we will have resolution on the Bill Belichick issue, and we will have further discussion of it in this very space. Until then, have a great week and enjoy Wild Card Weekend.